Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a big show for you today. We're excited to get right into it. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. All right, well, let's see what is on the agenda. Some pretty big developments. Why don't you get us started? Well, Tucker Carlson has released the first portion of the never-before-seen surveillance video taken inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. You may remember Carlson was granted access to the trove of security tapes by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, which prompted fierce backlash from Democrats and the media. With his first release of the footage, Carlson mocked January 6th as mostly peaceful chaos. Let's watch. It turns out there's quite a bit of video you haven't seen. And that video tells a very different story about what happened on January 6th. More than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from in and around the Capitol have been withheld from the public. And once you see the video, you'll understand why. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the Speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol, they obviously revere the Capitol. They're there because they believe the election was stolen from them they believe in the system. Here's the man you've heard referred to as the QAnon shaman outside the Senate chamber. These are not rioters. These are people who wandered over from a political rally. Now, Carlson also claims the new footage dispels the January 6th committee's timeline on the death of Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick. And several police officers in the meantime. But Brian Sicknick should not be reduced to a prop for the political ambitions of the Democratic Party. He was a human being. The facts of his life matter, including how he died. To this day, media accounts describe Sicknick as someone who was, quote, slain on January 6th. The video we reviewed proves that is a lie. Here is surveillance footage of Sicknick walking in the Capitol after he was supposedly murdered by the mob outside. By all appearances, Sicknick is healthy and vigorous. He's wearing a helmet, so it's hard to imagine he was killed by a head injury. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick was very obviously not the result of violence he suffered at the entrance to the Capitol. This tape overturns the single most powerful and politically useful lie the Democrats have told us about January 6th. And just to be extra clear, those views are not representative of Rising or the Hill. Uh, the election was won by President Biden. It was not stolen from Donald Trump. So we just want to have that all squared away before we continue to talk about this. Joining us now to weigh in on the new video dump is House reporter for The Hill, Emily Brooks. Emily, welcome to Rising. Thanks for having me. Now, Emily, can you clarify for us what we know and don't know about some of these insinuations that Carlson is making? For example, you know, conservatives are now alleging that the footage proves that the January 6th committee lied about Brian Sicknick, lied about Barry Loudermilk taking rioters on a reconnaissance mission, lied about Josh Howley running away, lied about Ray Epps being a credible witness. Can you help us parse some of that? Yeah, well, a lot of what Tar Tucker Carlson was talking about has already been hashed out in numerous court cases and in the January 6th committee, other reporting. So let's take these one at a time. So Brian Sicknick, it was uh, fairly well known that he did return to duty after having an encounter with a protester that had uh, 
used bear spray against him. Um, there were erroneous media reports that in the media aftermath of January 6th saying that he might have been hit in the head with a fire hydrant. Um, and so later there were medical examiner reports that said that he died of a stroke, but that he couldn't that he said that perhaps what happened at January 6th contributed to that. So this is sort of a political Rorschach test um, on Brian, Brian Signick's death, if you will, and it has been hashed out before. Um, and regarding the Jacob Chansey, the so-called QAnon shaman, uh, video footage that Tucker Carlson showed shows him wandering through the Capitol with police officers following him. Um, going past police officers and them not necessarily stopping him. What Tucker Carlson uh, did say is that there was some um, dispute about how he got into the building. That's really not disputed. Uh, the Jacob Chansey did admit in a plea arrangement a year and a half ago that he was one of the first 30 rioters that entered the building after a door was broken down. And there's video footage of that shows his entrance into the building and uh, the plea documents did say that he did not obey officers' requests to leave the building and, and to stop entering. And so those are the first two. I don't know how far you want to go here. I mean, they didn't, uh, but I see a lot of video footage there of them, you know, not, it almost looks like they're escorting him around. It, it does look like, as Tucker said, like they're showing him around the building. Um, it, you know, what are we to make of the fact that it, it, it's, so it's alleged they said, please leave, and then he didn't, and then they just, kind of walked with him? I mean, what, what, what is their thinking there? Well, I think Capitol Police officers have said in the past that, you know, they were overwhelmed by the number of rioters. Of course, you know, what they should and should have done, uh, shouldn't have done during that day is definitely up for dispute. But uh, I think Capitol Police officers have said they were overwhelmed. They were trying to calmly um, deal with the situation. It would be unfeasible to necessarily arrest every single person at that exact time. And the goal was to get the protesters and rioters out of the building. Yeah, it's confusing to, to see some of that um, coverage from Tucker Carlson only because it's very familiar, um, the characterization of people standing in lines and basically taking a tour of the Capitol was very much prevalent in the discourse after 1-6. I mean, liberals were making jokes about how people broke in only to stand in line, ha ha ha, look at these silly insurrectionists. So to be framing it as both new information and information that was supposed to be, or was being suppressed by liberals when it was very much actually used to be critical of and make fun of the protest, or the, the protest insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them. It, it, it's, it's odd. Um, and it does seem to be serving the purpose of reframing. Like, there's no issue in showing the people wandering around the Capitol. I don't think there's anything really revealing about it, except for that if that footage becomes used exclusively to the, to the exclusion of the footage of people breaking down the doors and forcing them way, their way in, committing the actual crime of breaking and entering a building that they had been told not to enter, then of course that has the possibility of establishing an alternative narrative. But what, in your view, might genuinely seem new here from the, the Tucker Carlson footage? Well, like you said, a lot of what we saw was separate angles of what we have seen in the past from hours and hours of footage that has already been public from this day. I think the newest thing here was probably the footage of Ray Epps 
um, near the steps of the Capitol that Tucker Carlson showed. Of course, he has been a major interest of those on the right um, after footage showed him on the night of January the 5th, telling people that we need to go into the Capitol. Uh, he did sit down with the January 6th committee um, and he said that he was not a federal agent or a federal informant or working behalf of anything of that. Uh, so now there is some dispute about the timeline of what he told uh, the January 6th committee when he sent a text to his nephew and what Tucker Carlson said was showing him about a half hour after he said that he had left the building. Um, but there is still no evidence of him actually, you know, engaging in, uh, there, there, there's not a huge bombshell there. It's more a dispute about the timeline there. Well, but I think the, bo the bombshell might be that this was a witness who was relied on by the January 6th commission, uh, who now we have video footage that contradicts what he told them. So, I mean, obviously people can make up, you know, their own mind about what happened by watching actual video footage, which is why I, I, I think this release is helpful in addition to the video footage we've seen of trespassing and vandalism and property destruction and violence. But, uh, but uh, I, I guess maybe, maybe give us more details on, uh, you know, how the EPS part of this is, is playing into the narrative about what happened on January 6th. Yeah, maybe you start by, can you clarify what the EPS testimony was used for in the 1-6 hearing? You know, what, what were Democrats relying on his testimony to do? And then we can better understand what it means for his testimony mm -hmm. to be undermined in this way. Well, the January 6th committee did not heavily rely on the EPS testimony. Um, they did interview hundreds of people after the committee hearings wrapped up. Uh, those were released. A lot of the people that they talked to were not featured in their numerous hearings. And so Ray Epps was one of those that they talked to. Um, they did talk to him after he became a really huge uh, person of interest among the right after that video emerged. Um, and so that, you know, that dispute about the timeline there, one of the big things that Tucker Carlson said is why hasn't this person been charged? Um, the prosecutors have previously said that they didn't have enough evidence to charge him of something. And they, you know, they have brought forward hundreds of cases. Uh, so uh, that's, I'm not sure. I'm not in the position to know if that changes anything regarding that decision. Uh, but that timeline information is new. Well, Politico's senior legal affairs reporter Kyle Cheney tweeted that Capitol Police Department sources told him the footage Tucker Carlson aired tonight of Jacob Chansley, the QAnon chairman, was virtually all available already to January 6 defendants via discovery, not actually part of a newly unearthed batch of documents. And CBS's uh, news, Scott McFarlane, added that the Justice Department has investigated over a thousand cases in its probe into January 6 and amassed hours in corresponding footage. Um, so do you, do you think, uh, how, how do you think this is going to affect perceptions of what happened in January 6th, which was, we're just on the, we're on the anniversary of it, a two-year anniversary of it? Well, uh, that video footage, as, as you mentioned, um, was available to defendants in discovery, much of it during those hours of about noon to 8 p.m., which is when the bulk of the, the, the action happened. Tucker Carlson did say on his show that, a lot of what they saw in that more than 40,000 hours of footage was really irrelevant, just videos of doors with nothing happening. Um, and so with, with the parts that were the action here, it's, it's not clear. I haven't seen anybody saying that this is 
new footage that was not previously uh, available to defendants from what uh, Tucker Carlson did show. And so whether this affects cases, I mean, there has been one, uh, at least one case where a lawyer has requested uh, an extension in this after this new evidence was made clear. Uh, House Republican leaders have said that they want this to be uh, available for uh, taking requests from from lawyers and others to review the footage in the same manner that Tucker Carlson said. And then after Capitol Police review it, perhaps it can be uh, released to them. Uh, so that's really what is um, might might do something here, but it's not clear whether this would affect any actual cases. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us to break it down. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we're going to continue discussing this subject up next. Please stay with us. Tucker Carlson has released the first portion of never-before-seen surveillance footage taken inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. We discussed the contents of that new footage with The Hill's Emily Brooks earlier. You should check that out. But now let's take a look at the media angle and what the media are saying so far about the video dump. What we saw tonight, Allison, from Tucker is, is nothing new. He has been trying to sanitize the very real violence that we all saw uh, unfold at the U.S. Capitol in real time for uh, quite some time now. I, I think what's really notable here is that he had a very key assist from Kevin McCarthy, someone who was at the Capitol on that day, who condemned the violence in the immediate wake of that attack, but has since uh, tried to get back in the uh, good graces of Trump and, and the MAGA fan base. And so what's so key here is that he helped Tucker Carlson try to rewrite history by giving him this surveillance footage, surveillance footage that he denied to actual news organizations. And now Tucker Carlson's back at his usual game of, of trying to, uh, I mean, not even trying to, of lying to, to his audience about uh, the events of that day. And here's a response from CBS News this morning. A bit of a fact check this morning after Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired previously unseen video of the assault on the Capitol on his show last night. What Carlson did is use selected clips from surveillance tapes provided to him by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to claim falsely that journalists and lawmakers lied about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Scott McFarlane is in Washington. Scott, good morning to you. Uh, you've been following this very closely. What stood out to you? Yeah, Tony, good morning. The narrative last night ignores the tens of thousands of pages of court filings we've read and the tonnage of footage already released by the Justice Department and shown in open court. And it ignores the powerful and at times tearful accounts of injured officers who are testifying under oath. Carlson called January 6th, quote, mostly peaceful and meek with a small percent that was violent. He showed limited edited footage Monday night on his program that draws an audience of 3.5 million viewers and pointed to images of a few protesters shuffling through the halls of Congress. All right. You know what really strikes me about that framing, first of all, the mostly peaceful with uh, some sprinklings of violence? It's the same rationale that's used for the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. protests. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that it's... It's true. I mean, obviously, you had millions of people in the streets. There were some instances of violence. They weren't representative of the mall. I think it's not necessarily so well applied here when the entire context of the thing is breaking and entering in a building, which was barricaded by police, which everybody knew they weren't supposed to go into, wherein well, the police were trying to get them out the entire time. But at time. that protest, there were 
thousands. Sure, people thousands, outside. Thousands, and it is, it is, in fact, the case that 99% of them were exercising their First Amendment rights. You can disagree well, with that. I don't know thought, about 99%, but, were, but a lot of them were. No, I was I, there. It was, it was massive. The, the crowd of people that did not go into the, into sure, the Capitol sure. was massive. Now, that, and they I, they're, I, not the, they're not the problem, right? And right. I mean, some people even probably went inside once all of the the, well, the and that's what I think we breached. see a lot of in this footage, frankly, which is why I think it's helpful. I, I think a lot of people went inside once the ramparts were breached because they thought it was maybe permissible. Mm -hmm. And there was some footage earlier on that was focused on where it looked like cops were just letting people in the building, opening the barricades and things like that. And so I don't fault those people either for being under the impression that they were being allowed to go into the building. However, <laughs> there was a stark contrast between how Tucker Carlson and some of these conservatives talk about other kind of protests with which they are not ideologically aligned in this one. And something something in the milk there ain't clean. That's all fair. I'm going to give you that one. but Because I want to talk about this sure. in greater detail. Because I do think, look, I was there. I, I witnessed the, sh the breaking of windows and doors and all that stuff. Those people uh, should be charged. I have no problem with them all being arrested and being charged. I agree with the characterization of the thing as a riot. It was very bad. I don't, I will never underplay how bad it was. It was embarrassing to watch this happening to our Capitol building. All that said, we, we are, we do see a lot of extra, and I don't like that, well, this is selective video footage. Well, we were just, we were it's all selective. It's all selective video yeah. footage. Unless we're going to sit down and watch 40,000 hours right. of it. So the, the fact that we're seeing a lot more video footage where people were just kind of strolling around the Capitol, where the police were not behaving as if they were being, like, hunted down by, by the MAGA wing, where, where law, uh, uh, members of Congress are not, like, actually fearing for their lives, where the, the, ostensible leader, to the extent this thing has any leader, doesn't actually have an organized structure, the QAnon shaman is, is not only being, like, fighting with police, he's not even being arrested, like, attacked by police. They're not doing anything about him. What did you make of that? I mean, I, I, you know, we see sometimes, you and I argue about these street videos about, you know, police tackling and sometimes ca uh, causing lethal harm to people. Um, they, they, they didn't do that here. They were just, there were, like, nine of them hanging out with the guy. Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks who have had a very different relationship with the police when they were law-abiding. Yeah. Or very frustrated from the beginning about not just, this is nothing new here. We have seen footage of the police acting non-adversarially with these, mm -hmm. these people on 1-6 all the time. Like, that, that, is, that is why I'm, I'm struggling with this. This isn't new. We have seen footage of people wandering mm -hmm. around in the Capitol. We have seen the footage of people standing in line when there's no... Mm -hmm. Reason. <laughs> There's no docent making you take your turn. But the, the commission, the mainstream media, the the insistence that this was, you know, one of the worst things that has ever happened. That the there was, you know, widespread violence and people fearing for their lives. But those are mutually exclusive things, yeah. right? Well, they're, they shouldn't be mutually. There exclusive. being some people who sure. just came in, who were just yeah. touristing around, does absolutely nothing. Which we've all known about and talked about this entire time. Yeah, has no bearing on the fact that there were. Well, also we've known about that. I don't. Is that reflective no, no. in the mainstream I coverage? I only know it? about it because. I watch TV. <laughs> you know I mean, I'm not. I'm not on the one six committee. You know. Well, you watched some Fox News in addition. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I watched. I was indifferent. I was like not that engaged by a lot of this stuff. But um, mm -hmm. one of the hearings that ended up happening, I, I watched for news value reasons. And 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 this, so none of this none of this footage was new. But none of that has anything to do with the other footage of Congress members crouching down in in the you know, in the congressional chamber and, and, and fearing and running down the halls and fearing their safety or the mobs of people who very much were violent, who had busted down a door and were openly calling for 
harm to be done to Congress members. That's also true. So, you know, I, you know, I was willing to hear what Tucker Carlson had to say and to see if there was any, any footage that was substantively revealing that would change the color of what happened in, in, on, on, in the Capitol that day. And while I completely take the point that maybe that some of the timelines were off, someone was somewhere 30 minutes after they were supposed to have been there, the, the Ray Epps stuff, that is interesting, and I'm open to hearing why that's material. But Ray Epps not being where he was supposed to be for 30 minutes at some point in the testimony doesn't change the fact that we all saw a bunch of rioters break down the door to one of our Capitol buildings. A rioter was killed in the process. A, a, a um, what do you call it? The noose was hung outside of the Capitol. They were calling for the blood of Mike Pence. All of that happened, too. Law enforcement certainly doesn't seem too worried about it from what we see in the additional video footage. Well, look, I also think that um, uh, the earlier guest's point that they were dramatically outnumbered is is right and true. And that, I don't know, well, what did you expect them to do to start uh, handcuffing? How many people were, were was each cop was supposed to handcuff and lead to where? Now, I would have liked to have seen... I think one there was an issue about they whether had or not Jacob the, Chansley by himself, right? But you just because in yeah. one frame you see one person, their halls are filled with hundreds, thousands. I'm not sure exactly. I don't mean mm -hmm. to overestimate of people, and there's I don't think there's any but many, some that the of cops the were dramatically some of the people who've gone in have said that they believed that they were allowed to be there. Yeah, we just, and yeah, we talked I think about some that. of right. I, I think some of this video footage would show you why they thought. Yeah, they absolutely. Were to but be the, there. what we're talking about now is the mens rea of the cops. Why the cops. Mm -hmm behaved in a way that made people think that they were allowed to be there. And I think that's perfectly reasonable for the cops to understand that you, there's no jail in the prison. You can't just start locking people up and have, I mean, well, you're that, just in a building. And that, that reminds me, I want to touch on this before we, before we go. Uh, the, this is probably the most BS part of all of it to me. The idea that releasing this footage undermines the safety or the integrity of the U.S. Capitol in the future, which was what many Democrats and other cable news people who were saying, who were talking about the threat and the harm of releasing this video footage. Um, so, Tuck, at the beginning of of, the, of Tucker's segment on this, he said that. So, this is taken from him for whatever that's worth. He said he spoke to the Capitol Police about releasing this footage. Said they were not particularly concerned that it presents future security risks at all. They asked him to make small choices, including. Blurring uh, like one door, um, and he and he did that, and it, it was fine. From watching this, I don't see how any reasonable person could conclude this is like. Oh, now you have like a master plan of the Capitol for your future attack or something. Yeah, I don't get it from this footage. Maybe something could be pieced together if you had access to all of the thousands of hours that Tucker Carlson has. But unless the claim is that Tucker Carlson is going to leak that or personally plan an insurrection himself, I don't really get it. I, you know, I also did a quick perusal to see if there had been any Democrat, any any people in the liberal media who were making these kind of claims that had followed up and said, "Well, this is the threat that we were worried about. This is what could happen with the footage that was released." And so far, at least, Nada. I haven't seen any of that. Nada. So. We got one more uh, clip to play from CNN. Let's watch several times saying essentially you know this is access the footage that you had access to parts of it that the committee did not air um do you want to respond to that and also you know that he's he, he said you are you were a liar and liz cheney was a liar and that you guys perpetuated this lie yeah i mean look obviously everybody knows even in their heart even those that think 
that uh, or that will say out loud that the insurrection didn't happen. They know in their heart that it did. So you can call me a liar all you want. I just know that means we're over the target typically. Um, look, I, I can look at myself in the mirror. I know Tucker Carlson, he has a lot more money than I do, but it's probably much harder for him to wake up and look in the mirror uh, because he knows what he's doing to a country that I've sworn to defend both in uniform and in Congress that he's never taken that similar oath. So that's fine. Not everybody has to take that oath, but he hasn't. And I think that's clear. But look, in terms of saying that we've hidden this footage, oh, we had one of the most transparent hearings in history with the most footage we've ever shown in history. And every single almost uh, witness that came in front of us was a very partisan witness. They were all Republicans that came in front of this committee. <laughs> I like how you turn that. Um, what do you think of Kevin McCarthy? I mean, come on. All right. <sighs> the weird framing by the MSNBC, the CNN oh. host aside. I mean, what's, what's so frustrating is the guest, the guest makes the, the point that the Democrats were at least thoughtful enough to use Republicans in their hearing. That is true. So that there couldn't be these accusations that you don't, you shouldn't listen to them because they are self-interested. Right. I mean, and Kinzinger the, is ostensibly a Republican. Sure. But then the CNN hosts go and like, undermine all of that credibility that yeah. the 1-6 committee tried to build up by saying, LOL, isn't he ridiculous? Yeah. But look, Don Lemon, specifically. Don, Don Lemon, specifically, <laughs> yeah. But, but to, the, to the point of, of, um, of their guest... Do you think that this framing that Tucker Carlson is going for, which is it's a patriotism to break into the uh, the Capitol, it's, it's showing your love of country to want to break into the Capitol and get, give yourself a self-guided tour. It's because you appreciate uh, well, our government. That's what he said. He literally said in he the said clip that, that it's that's patriotic. What they were thinking. These were patriots. He said that was what they were thinking, right. not that that was good. Right. Well, no. That, that's obviously implicit in what he's trying to say. Why talk about the patriotism of someone who just committed a crime if you're not just trying to excuse the fact of them committing this crime? So this, this, do you think this framing, that breaking into the Capitol is good, actually, if in your heart you really admire the Capitol? Because i got to tell you, there's any number of communists, socialists, leftists, Antifas who love America and want it to be better I, and would want to do all kinds of things in the Capitol. I can only speak for myself. Breaking into the Capitol, very bad. <laughs> do not, I don't like when windows are smashed and things Things are set on fire, whether it's the Capitol or the church on the other side of Lafayette Square or your convenience store in your neighborhood or anything. I am very, very much against the rioting, and it is bad, and they shouldn't have gone into the Capitol, and they should be prosecuted to the to to a sensible. I mean that Jacob Chansley's been was held in solitary confinement for you know, mm -hmm. a very long time. I don't, as is characteristic of the criminal justice system, often the punishment does not fit the crime, and that's not, that's true for these, might be true for many of these people, and it's true for many of non-political people. We would agree on that, sure. some of that stuff. So I, I don't, I don't want to downplay the badness of January 6th. However, it has also been overplayed as the most horrible thing that has ever happened to our democracy on many mainstream news outlets. Do you agree that and Tucker think Carlson is, is a, downplaying the events on January 6th? I, I think he's, well, I'm no. I, he, he said he acknowledged that they smashed windows and they shouldn't have done that, and they entered. I don't know what he thinks about what kind of. Um, certainly, there are some on the right doing it. I don't know if Tucker's doing it himself. I think it is helpful to have some, to have a little bit of a correction to how focused on January 6th the mainstream media has been. All right. Well, by focusing on January 6th more with new footage, apparently that's the. <laughs> we're trying. He's, setting to the, he's trying to set the record straight. I don't know that I agree with all the conclusions he's making, but. Decide for yourself, more rising right after this.
to the New York Times, a new intelligence report reviewed by U.S. officials asserts that a pro-Ukrainian group was behind last year's attacks on the Nord Stream pipeline. U.S. government officials say there are no links showing Ukrainian President Zelensky or his government had anything to do with the act, but declined to offer any further information on the intelligence. Meanwhile, Zelensky has vowed to send more troops to the eastern city of Bakhmut in what has become the bloodiest battle in the war with Russia. This just days after reports suggested Kiev is likely withdrawing from the battle. Zelensky's announcement comes after President Biden approved another $400 million in aid to Ukraine. The unfaltering spending to the war-torn country has caused lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to begin to question the funding packages, according to The New York Times. So this, uh, this story about Nord Stream in The New York Times mm -hmm. is about intelligence report. So it sounds like officials, U.S. Uh, national security officials, are summarizing this intelligence for The New York Times. Very interesting. So it does not say that Russia did this. Uh, now, to, to be clear, it doesn't say the U.S. did it. It said, or Zelensky, it says a pro-Ukrainian <laughs> entity. But not, not Ukraine. What is the pro-Ukrainian <laughs> entity that's not Ukraine? <laughs> and not the United States of America. Yeah, yeah, look, I'm not accusing anybody of simply printing U.S. intelligence reports that are false because it exonerates the U.S. Right. and Zelensky of responsibility for an attack on a pipeline that would be a violation of international law. However, we definitely know that there is a pattern that exists of media printing U.S. intelligence reports the way they print um, yeah. police reports uncritically, and the complete and total deficit of information here I think is revealing. I would like to see this intelligence report myself. Why is this not something the American people can view? Right. So here, here's here's just one paragraph that that shows you mm -hmm. the the kind of void that this article really is. It says U.S. officials said there was much they didn't know about the perpetrators or their affiliations. The review of newly collected intelligence suggests they were opponents of Vladimir Putin of Russia, but does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. U.S. officials declined to disclose the nature of the intelligence or how it was obtained or any details of the strength of the evidence it contains. They have said there are no firm conclusions about it, leaving open the possibility that the operation might have been conducted off the books by a proxy force. So what this does is basically have an article that says, just in case you're wondering, we don't know anything about anything, but it wasn't us and it wasn't Zelensky. But this is a little bit, I, I mean, I agree with you, but. It is. It, it represents a, a slight shift because they're not saying Russia did it. Well, they haven't been saying Russia did it. There was a report, I think, on the Washington Post at the end of last year, where the like there was just no intelligence there. There for US Russia's involvement. Have been saying Russia did it. U.S. officials, but the, the media has been off of that for a long time. Even yeah. the, even the corporate media has come out with yeah. reports that I think it was because the. Um, well, but this is U.S. officials now saying now in a in a in an intelligence report being summarized by the New York Times, but the, but the intelligence people are not saying Russia did it. I found that remarkable. Well, I, I think the reason is, ever since we got the report last year from yeah. whatever it was, uh, the combination of Norway and Sweden and Germany or whoever it was mm -hmm. that was doing the investigation, they very quickly cleared Russia of responsibility. So there was absolutely no evidence that Russia could be involved. So since that point, unless you're willing to contradict allies and have some proof with which to contradict allies, I think it put the U.S. in a very difficult position. Um, and the, the narrative of Russia having involvement has been 
substantively dead for a while, but that leaves a void, right? That leaves a, well, mm -hmm. then, okay, then who did it void? Because as the Seymour Hersh uh, reporting details, it takes a, an enormous amount of technical capacity to be able to carry something out like this at the deep sea depths. There's only so many divers that are trained for this kind of operation. There's only so many ships that can gain access to this heavily patrolled NATO area of the occupied area of the of the ocean of the sea. So this seems to be one might argue that this is an effort to provide uh, a placeholder uh, where that void of Russia didn't do it exists, which is to say that there could be some what terrorist group, some third party unaffiliated with another country. Because again, this is important. Because once it's affiliated with the country, once it's Zelensky's responsible, once the United mm -hmm. States is responsible, there are implications for international but law. Zelensky, I believe, has said Russia is responsible. Well, but so, so now. <laughs> Well, no, no, I know. I know. I'm just saying U.S. intelligence officials are contradicting what Zelensky has said and contradicting what our own officials used to say. I mean, you're saying you're right that the media has maybe moved, even the corporate media catching up to it. But uh, I, I, I think this is a little bit like uh, the lab leak animal spillover debate where like the one the side that the dissidents or the contrarians or the people not well respected have been saying, uh, we're not allowed to talk about it. You don't think there's any likelihood to this is, is gradually winning over time. Well, look, you can see— And I actually as, see this piece as—even though it's flawed and not, I don't think, correct that's about— That's funny. I, I see it as is, fully insulating—it's it's telling people, no matter what ambiguity exists out there, America definitely didn't do it, and Zelensky definitely didn't do it, which to me represents not a kind of movement to more inquiry and openness. It's If you're going to mm -hmm. use the lab leak um, analogy, it's as if instead of saying, we know it's zoonotic— they say it, we, it might not be zoonotic, but it's absolutely not lab leak. Mm. You know, it's absolutely not uh, the one that would be negatively like, implicate America or our, our funding practices in these labs or whatever negatively. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good intelligence <laughs> report or even correct, but I, I find it interesting that the U.S. intelligence officials are no longer actually blaming Russia, which op to me opens the door to eventually learn something else about who might have been responsible. I mean, part of what was so fascinating— But if we could actually read the report, we'd know. We're, we're, we're relying report, on the New York Times Well, remember, the whole point of that of U.N. hearing that we covered a week or two ago, right. at which Zeff, uh, Jeffrey Sachs gave uh, remarks in, in addition to a former um, CIA uh, official, Ray McGovern, about why they believe the Seymour Hersh report is accurate, was that they were calling—they were, they were there to testify— in favor of a UN independent committee to do an independent investigation. And the reason why Russia is invested in this is because the results of the investigation or the investigation itself, they're being barred from participating from that's being carried out by a number of NATO countries. And whatever you think about Russia, no one's really arguing that they're involved. And it seems obvious why they would have an investment in figuring out who actually did it, given how much blame came their way and how, the, to your point, Robbie, the U.S. Intel the US officials have been wanting to finger them with, them with this the whole time and only basically stopped because they, they can't. There's no evidence for it. So why, wouldn't, why would Russia trust a report by a bunch of NATO allies who have every incentive to either not find the real solution, if not cast it in a negative light? And that's— 
I would argue exactly what the UN is there for, to conduct these kind of investigations. But there was no appetite from it from the United States, France, or any of the other NATO countries that were on that panel. A lot of the other sub the other um, uh, Global South countries were kind of more neutral on it, made critical statements about what this did to the environment, how it was a horrible environmental impact, and that people should care about it. But, you know, it is very—it is— it is interesting to me that the U.S. media that there there there's an openness to the U.N. conducting an independent investigation. Yeah. Why? It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. But I, I thought this was interesting. Well, we'll continue to follow for sure any developments on the Nord Stream front, and we will have more rising right after this. President Biden stumbled while getting back on Air Force One after a trip he took yesterday to Selma, Alabama, to commemorate the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. This wasn't the first time he fell while trotting up the plane's steps. Just last month, he tripped up the Air Force One steps when boarding to leave Poland. And in March of 2021, he seemed to lose his balance, too, this time at Air Force Andrews Air Base. It's unclear what caused Biden to stumble multiple times might raise some alarm for people calling into question whether the 80-year-old is fully fit to serve another term as president, according to an Associated Press report. Uh, he's got to hold the handrails. He's not holding the handrails in some of those. you got to hold the handrails. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, the implication is that he's not fit to govern because he can't walk up the stairs. So a I couple, trip on stairs all the time. A couple of things, though. Obama stumbled up the steps. I don't know if there's been a, a president, regardless of age, who hasn't tripped up the steps. And part of me is frustrated by this discourse because I'm much more concerned about what Biden says, what he thinks, and his policy positions mm -hmm. and decision-making than I am about even his, his physical robustness. Right. At the end of the day, I don't care if he's confined to, you know, bed rest or yeah. wheelchair or anything like that. We had presidents in the past who were. And so that, that, I just feel like it's the wrong metric to be assessing his fitness. Mm -hmm. Now, substantively. His mental acuity, though, is sure. a little bit different based on sure. the way he presents himself, the way he says things. Sure. Where he appears to forget things or choose the wrong words. And now maybe that's just the way Joe Biden is. It's not reflecting any sort of cognitive decline. But that's, I think, a more serious question. Yes. And even outside of changes in his synaptic firing that may, may be the result of age or whatnot, his political choices and decision-making have been questionable his entire yeah. life. I mean, there's substantive disagreements to be had about the man. He is, frankly, on many policy metrics to the right of many people in the country. We just had this whole discourse around Social Security where in this moment he is defending it and I think did a great job at the State of the Union putting Republicans in a position of also having to defend Social Security when they objected to his characterization of them of having, to, having tried to cut it in the past. They booed that and he said, okay, great. Well, then I guess you agree with me. We're all going to protect Social Security. That's great. It is also true that he is someone who has led the charge against social, uh, or uh, for trying to cut Social Security, has said that Social Security cuts are on the table for, for the majority of his career. So, I mean, it just feels a little bit it feels a little bit like a misdirection to have to talk about these kinds of things when the issues that are germane to the interests and positive economic outcomes for the American people are separate and apart from whether or not he can make it up a staircase. Sure. Uh, yeah, I don't want to uh, draw too many conclusions for this or make it into a bigger deal than it is. I mean, it is, it is a reminder that he is a, he's an older American. Um, you know, we should respect the elderly. They're entitled to comfort and rest in their old years. We happen to be 
having a lot of very old people in key positions in government right now in a historically unprecedented way that is itself a little bit worrying to me. Uh, also in the way that they kind of cling to power. I mean, some are in, like Dianne Feinstein finally retiring. Um, Chuck Grassley is ancient. Uh, the average age of the members of Congress has gone way up. A lot of them just choose not to retire because they don't face enough competition or pressure to do so in, in a way that I think can be unhealthy for our democracy. It's not necessarily healthy for them. Maybe it's healthy for, in some cases, how much money they make. Sure, because I was, um. was going to say, they're all disproportionately old, and they're also disproportionately incredibly affluent in Congress. Yes. Yeah. And I, in a lot of ways, I think the latter part is the bigger problem, but they're related. You know, how is it that someone in Congress for 20 years on a $170,000 salary is able to amass millions of dollars in wealth? Mm -hmm. And that's not wealth they had coming yes. in. The gap between what Nancy Pelosi because was worth 30 years ago versus now, that's, that's the fundamental problem. Yeah. It's worth noting that, you know, Biden's only challenger so far in the Democratic primary uh, was recently asked about his age and whether or not that was something that was motivating her to run for president. And of course, Marianne Williamson in this recent uh, interview was very adamant that that was not a line of attack that she was planning to take. Let's take a, take a look at that. Do you think Biden is too old to run for election? No, I, I'm, I'm not going there. I don't think ageism has any place in our, um, in, 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 in our thinking. Um, so what do you make of that? Is that a, a smart strategy for Marianne to not want to hit him on his age? Well, I don't know if it's a smart strategy or not. I think we asked her about that yesterday. She was interviewed on Rising by me and Bacha, and she very much didn't, yeah, didn't want to go that route, which, which is respectful. Uh, she's a very respectful person. She wants to have a engage on ideas, uh, which, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a fine choice. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I can understand not wanting to go there, even though it probably is a good way to yeah, attack at the, it. At the end of the day, I think that that she's probably conscious of the fact that Democrats have painted anyone who criticizes Biden's age as bad faith, yeah. mean, low base, beneath political notice. And as someone who's already getting that treatment for the press because of the substance of her ideas, it's a bit of a thorny patch for her to to, yeah. to engage with, even if it's legitimate. Um, so I mean, I understand strategically why she would want to stay away from it. I mean, look at what happened to even Democratic insiders like um, uh, Julian Castro and uh, Cory Booker when during the 2019-2020 primary season, they made some pretty obvious statements about uh, Joe Biden's debate performance, his failure to remember things that had just been said. And that was basically the last time we've seen them in the context of the primary or since. Well, First Lady Jill Biden scoffed at suggestions that the president should take a cognitive test, labeling Nikki Haley's proposed testing for politicians over 75 years of age ridiculous and saying, quote, I mean, we haven't even discussed, we would never even discuss something like that. Uh, a comment from a pastor prime uh, sort of political figure, LOL. which I will never stop saying <laughs> that again. I don't mean that. I'm making fun of Don Lemon, to be clear. Well, look, okay. I actually, I think I do agree with Jill Biden here. The idea that you should need to cognitive test people after 75, if you're going to cognitive test people, cognitive test them uh, the, at any age. The cognitive test is the election. Right? <laughs> like if you get more votes than the other person, you won the cognitive test. I mean, what, what else are we going to do? Now, the cognitive test idea is a kind of trying to, is trying to expert and science this. Yeah. These are political questions, yeah. not 
not the experts can't decide whether Biden should be the president. Only the American people can do that. Right. Some of us would say that some of his policies ref reflect cognitive decline, but we would have said that about him at any age. And, right. And say that's essentially what you just said earlier right. in the segment. Also, the ways it could be weaponized. I mean, you know, any yeah. conservative who might think that that's a good idea should reflect on Ronald Reagan. And Democrats yeah. who think that might be a good idea should reflect on John Fetterman. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And again, it's an, I think you're right. It's a political decision. And if the voters want to vote these people in, they can live with the consequences of that. The cognitive test is the scoreboard. All right, more rising right after this. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman will be back in his Senate seat soon. His chief of staff said yesterday while sharing photos of the senator, who has been undergoing treatment for clinical depression at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. The senator is reportedly well on his way to recovery and is laser focused on Pennsylvania. Fetterman sponsored a rail safety bill from the hospital and a plan to avert future crises like the one occurring after two Norfolk Southern trains have derailed in Ohio. Hmm. Well, good to see him back at work and hopefully have some answer into what kind of condition he actually is in. Obviously, there's been a lot of, there's been very limited interactions between the senator and the press as he's been recovering. Um, look, I think there are a lot of legitimate questions about the state of his health, obviously, and his health should come first. His health was a major concern during the campaign, and there were a lot of, I think, valid questions raised about whether he was actually in shape to serve in the Senate, and those, I mean, those concerns have frankly been somewhat borne out, given that he's spent a significant time so far um, recovering. So. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, let's remember what happened. It wasn't a choice to run with health issues a priori it was sure. a stroke that occurred a week uh, before the election, if I recall correctly, and at, at which time there wasn't an opportunity to really switch gears. Um, you know, he's been, I think, more transparent than maybe folks would, might have advised him to be in terms of signing up for a debate, which many people thought was ill-advised and that was going to ruin his chances ultimately. But the people chose him. And so, like with many other People, um, Congress members who have suffered from unpredictable illnesses, have dealt with cancer or have given birth or who have done any number of kind of things that uh, during during mm -hmm. um, their tenure or who like uh, George Santos were caught in a whole string of lies that were misrepresentations that might have undermined his being elected in the first place. This is, this is what it means to be in politics. Yeah, like I said when we discussed uh, Biden's health, the cognitive test is the election, yeah. which, he, which he passed. Um, I, I think he had a, a remarkably weak uh, opponent in Dr. Oz. Uh, it, it is astonishing that Republicans <laughs> should lose that race, to my mind, given the, the condition John Fetterman was in by the day of the election. But uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson had this to say regarding John Fetterman's speaking abilities. There Fetterman's own wife, a former illegal alien called Giselle, candidly told reporters how she deals with her brain-damaged husband. Quote, you just like ignore him when he's speaking. Now, Democratic voters love this because they always love it when women attack and diminish their own husbands. It makes them feel like they're not alone. It's totally normal to hate your husband. And of course, they took Giselle's advice and they elected John Fetterman to the Senate. In a party where no debate is allowed, it's not like you need a senator who can use words. I don't know what to make of some of those comments, obviously, but uh, look, I, I think it is fair to ask if his physical, ail I, like I don't 
want him to be physically ailing, but you, there's a certain amount of both physical and mental fitness required to be serving in the Senate. There are many. There are perhaps several members of Congress who currently are not passing that test, and I don't think they belong there either, um, including Dianne Feinstein, who is thankfully finally retiring. But um, I, I mean, look, it can sound mean-spirited to point these things out, and I think some of the no, ways in which people on the right are pointing I it out are mean-spirited. I think having a conversation but, about somebody's mental health is a different thing from attacking their wife. Um, from trying to shoehorn, uh, make her opinion on the matter, her previous undocumented immigrant status, which has absolutely nothing to do with uh, her current status or J uh, John Fetterman's uh, mental fitness, into a conversation. I thought that was extremely ugly. Um, and I don't know that most Americans, most of us have uh, had a loved one who has suffered a stroke, um, has recovered or maybe not recovered from a stroke. I don't think a lot of people appreciate that kind of tone being taken, even if they have sincere concerns about jo John Betterman's ability to lead. And I think that approach that Tucker Carlson was taking in that clip is exactly why Fetterman was able to succeed in, in, in Pennsylvania. We're in the middle of a healthcare crisis. We have 68,000 people who die every year from a lack of health insurance. One third, I believe, of Americans have medical debt. Um, we have a, a population that is very vulnerable to issues like strokes because of an obesity epidemic, which has a lot to do with farm subsidies and an agricultural um, sector that's completely out of whack and is incentivizing us to put all kinds of crazy seed oils and nonsense in all of our food. So all of this is going on and you're going to sit there and talk about someone who in many ways is very reflective of the American condition in such an inhumane way. I mean, I don't know that that's winning any hearts and minds, even though there is a substantive issue here when it comes to whether or not John Fetterman is going to be able to fulfill his professional duties. Mm. I think we got a few more clips to react to. Florida Representative Matt Gates mentioned Fetterman receiving treatment for clinical depression in a recent conversation. There was a media campaign to endlessly repeat false allegations about me in order to try to take me off the chessboard. And I didn't do those things. I didn't go check in like as John Fetterman's roommate at Walter Reed. I went on tour. I told people what we believed, the work that we had to do going forward in a Republican majority. And we have a clip of Donald Trump Jr. comparing John Fetterman to a vegetable while speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference over the weekend. Pennsylvania managed to elect a vegetable. They criticized me as being ableist. I didn't know what that was, but there's always an ist, right? There's, there's always an ist, and it doesn't matter what you're talking about. And apparently an ableist is someone who discriminates against those with disabilities. I said, well, I'm not discriminating against an ableist. I'd love for John Fetterman to have, like, good gainful employment. Maybe he could be, like, a bad guy at, like, a grocery store. Or, But, like, is it unreasonable for me to expect, as a citizen of the United States of America, to have a United States senator have basic cognitive function? That's... Uh why a lot of people are frustrated with right populism. I'm sorry. Like, a, I would love it if there were a, a populist movement that engaged with working class in a way that was respectful and that didn't imply that they're kind of brain-dead vegetables doing jobs that are of value and without which society couldn't mm -hmm. go on, jobs that we celebrated as heroic during the pandemic when we were all so deeply reliant on them, to be able to turn on a dime and speak so dismissively of them in an effort to insult somebody else, to use them as like human collateral on your way to, again, 
having what can be a substantive conversation about John Vetterman's mental state, I think it diminishes the party. I think it diminishes the speaker. And it does nothing to talk about the substantive issues people care about. We kind of alluded to the fact that John Vetterman has co-sponsored this, this railway bill to prevent accidents like what's happening in East Palestine. How many people in East Palestine Bag groceries. Right. How many people in East Palestine work say, those kind of work? I think Donald jobs. Trump Jr. there forgot that the Republican Party is aspiring to be the party of that very job of people in those positions. Yes. So why sound like he's denigrating? He did come across like he was denigrating that work. So that wasn't a, a, a successful rhetorical moment. I think it's kind of emblematic, actually, of the decline of CP that that event was at CPAC over the weekend. By all accounts, not nearly as well attended or energetic. Um, as, as in previous years, still wholly beholden to Donald Trump, so beholden to Donald Trump that Ron DeSantis did not attend. Um, really, really in the tank for the Trumpy Trump faction of the GOP that you know, that I, I've said on the show many times. I think is not necessarily healthy for the over the the loyalty to that person who did not win re-election and whose candidates, including the one. Dr. Uh, Fetterman ran against, Dr. Oz, uh, squandered races that, that could have been winnable yeah. uh, because of Trump's unique hold on them. Th these were his candidates, the ones who didn't fare well in Arizona, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, and, and ones who were beholden to his issues. Chiefly, it didn't come up as much in the uh, Pennsylvania race, but it certainly did in Arizona um, and, uh, and Nevada. Um, the, ele the election denial that he forced these candidates to talk about because it's, that's how you win his affection, but it's not something voter that resonates with voters at all. Even even many Republican voters, it's not resonating with them. Yeah, well, it's resonating apparently with the Tucker Carl's audience with these wow. new um, uh, disclosures of the video footage. So we'll see where this takes us. And if that is perhaps emblematic for Tucker Carlson's continued um, alliance or fidelity to the Trumpism or the Trump movement, we'll have more rising for you right after this. The House subcommittee tasked with probing the origins of COVID dug up new evidence buried in multiple emails showing that Dr. Anthony Fauci, Francis Collins, and others discussed the novel coronavirus in February 2020 and that it might have come from a lab in Wuhan, China. The emails also reveal Fauci commissioned a paper rejecting the possibility of the lab leak theory and weeks later, speaking from the White House press podium, he told the media that the notion COVID-19 was born in a lab was implausible. And liberal media ran with that story, according to a Fox News report. Then CNN chief Jeff Zucker directed staffers at the network to ignore the lab leak theory because it was, quote, a Trump talking point. So some of this is not new. We already knew that Dr. Fauci and other scientists had a call early on to discuss whether it was possible this originated from a lab. Uh, what is here, new here, as far as I can tell, is that this paper that he later referred to it, there's the press conference where there's Trump and Mike Pence both on stage, and Fauci takes a question at a lab and says, we're really, what we're seeing is more reflective of spillover from animals, and there's a paper that I can refer you to about that, or there's about to be a paper. We now know that paper was one Fauci pushed for to be written based on the call that they had. Um, so this was, uh, uh, so Anderson submitted, the, the, Anderson is the name of the doctor who wrote it. He said the paper ran in Nature Medicine in February, 20, uh, February of 2020. Um, his email about it said, there's been a lot of speculation, fear-mongering, and, fear and conspiracies put forward in this space. Um, and the paper was prompted by Jeremy Farah, Tony Fauci, and Francis Collins. Jeremy Farah is head of a British nonprofit 
um, with certain ties to pharmaceutical industries. And after he read the paper, the proximal origin paper, Farah, uh, Farrar, sorry, said, sorry to micro—emailed uh, Anderson and said, sorry to micromanage edit, but would you be willing to change one sentence? He wanted to replace the word unlikely with improbable in a statement about the lab leak origin. I'm reading directly from the New York Post coverage of this. Mm. Um, so look, this is all very concerning, I think. No smoking gun. We're going to be very careful with our claims. but uh, But— I, I think people might come away from this with a real, a real uh, skepticism that this matter, the origins of COVID, could be fairly and impartially adjudicated and investigated by people like Dr. Fauci, given, given the stakes for them, given how interested they are in doing this kind of research and not having undue scrutiny of it. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I was trying to reflect on when the tide seemed to turn on lab leak theory, because I, I think it's definitely true that there was a period of time earlier on, probably for most of 2020, where to mention lab leak theory was to put a scarlet letter on mm -hmm. your chest and declare yourself a kook and an unserious person. Um, but by summer, for sure, of 2021, there were people talking about it more openly, Joe Biden's administration had commissioned an investigation into the potential origins, um, including mm -hmm. uh, uh, lab leak theory. Um, you know, the the tide had turned. You know, out, outlets in the mainstream were talking about it more openly and what the arguments were for either origin tale. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it matters. It matters that there was obviously this effort to suppress any d conversation about it at an earlier date. At this point, though, I'm almost more concerned by the sudden shift and what it means. So this new shift where now we have a number of um, uh, government agencies affirming that it's low confidence, more likely than not, that it actually uh, had a lab leak origin. And the way that so many people now are taking that as a way to ratchet up tensions with China and escalating a conversation about, well, how are we going to hold them responsible? And some people on the left who have been very open to the possible origin of COVID as mm -hmm. being lab leak the entire time are concerned about what it means for the government to have taken one posture for so long and to be switching to a different posture at this time when over the past six months or so, we saw the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan. We've seen escalations in a kind of a, uh, the kind of rhetoric about what the United States is willing to do to defend um, Taiwan. There has been uh, such a, a, a bipartisan commitment to the CHIPS Act, almost anticipating that there is going to be a supply chain issue um, with these much needed, um, this much needed technology. And does all of this mean that we should be not just excited about the fact that we can now talk about lab lake theory, but more skeptical or scrutinize more closely why it is that there has been this political shift? Well, if that prompts us to ask why we have this relationship with the Chinese government that we fund research in their country that we have very little actual control over outside our purview, I, I, think, it, I think it's mainly the scientific relationship that deserves revisiting. Um, but look, if the Chinese government is responsible for a pandemic that killed millions of people worldwide, well, wait a minute. You're saying the, there should the, be no consequences The Chinese government is responsible Wait a minute. Is the American government responsible if, if a scientist Certainly. in America— No, 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 no. <laughs> it's the, 
there are people who are making the argument that China intentionally released this as no. a bioweapon. And those so people I'm not, say I'm things not like, making that argument. I, I, don't, I don't think I don't that you mean so. to make that argument, but that, that, that kind of rhetoric, the Chinese government is responsible, can be very easily read as an intentionality versus a, a lab that is the responsibility of both U.S. scientists and Chinese yeah, scientists, no, I'm the saying, U.S. I'm government and the Chinese the government. The of Health are responsible. Right. I, yeah. I just, I don't understand how you can, how, not you, but one can characterize, if it is lab leak, how you can, one can characterize the responsibility as not the U.S. government's responsibility as well, no, given no, no. our yes. investment and in, in financial support of those labs. No, 100%. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the reason to do this investigation, do this work to really understand it, because yes, the lab leak theory, despite being portrayed as like racist and anti-Chinese, which is crazy, the lab leak theory, if true, indicts the Chinese government and also aspects of our government and some of our foremost health advisors who should be held accountable if they if they were negligent in 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 the research they funded or recommended it contrary to I mean we had a gain or we had a pause on gain of function research that Anthony Fauci has admitted there were sometimes waivers for and he can't remember quite recall he might have signed a document this is yeah I'm not I'm not deflecting this to to, uh, to China I, I'm certainly not deflecting this to the people of China the Chinese people which is what actually what the mainstream media tried to do somehow portraying the opponents of that view as racist, which is, I, I will never get over. It just makes no sense. Yeah, well, it's just something we're watching. There was this um, uh, write-up in um, the Financial Times by Edward Luce uh, called um, The New Cold War Makes Another Pandemic More Likely, China and the Lab Leak Theory, and basically makes this argument about how people are weaponizing this news, which can be factual and legitimate and worth talking about for these broader political ends. And given how much appetite there is, I think, you know, there was there was a, a lot of public applause for uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan, despite there being a lot of blob concern mm -hmm. uh, about it, about the way it was done in particular. Um, and there is this anti-war bipartisan, largely fueled by the right movement in the country around Ukraine. But there is a concern that this is all misdirection and that the desire to withdraw from Afghanistan and the desire to back away from Ukraine is a, a, it's pre-staging uh, an accelerated conflict with China. Well, and it's a resource concern. And when you see certain conservative politicians who are very um, hawkish on China at the same time that they're dovish on Ukraine, you start to see where that narrative is coming from. Well, we from. can have... You know, we can have a debate about what the right policies are. I might disagree with some of them, but we need we need the truth as a baseline. We deserve to know the truth, sure. and then we can choose how we what we do about that, what we think is the right response to that. But the the truth is the truth and should be pursued. You know, with the um, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall, that kind of thing. We deserve to know. <laughs> All right. Well, we requested comment from Dr. Fauci on the matter, and we will keep you posted if we hear back. More rising right after this. President Biden said recently that he would go to East Palestine, Ohio, the site of the now infamous Norfolk Southern train derailment. But the president still has made no official plans to visit the site, this following not one, but actually multiple train derailments involving Norfolk Southern trains. Uh, former President Trump and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, however, have both made stops in the Ohio town. Ohio Governor Josh Shapiro said Monday that he secured commitment from Norfolk Southern to pay millions of dollars to cover the costs of last month's disaster. Here to dive into the economic impact of this latest debacle is Jessica Burbank, an economic policy analyst and content creator. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. 
So I see this uh, being reported a lot today that there has been this commitment to get uh, Norfolk Southern to pay millions of dollars to uh, help clean up the, the crisis that they caused. Do we have a sense of what the actual costs uh, of the crisis are going to be in terms of long-term medical care, potentially, environmental impact, et cetera, and whether or not there's actually a reasonable relationship between the amount of money that's been pledged and what it's going to take to get this make this community whole again? Right. Yeah. The main concern, of course, is the long-term medical costs to the people living in the surrounding counties, Beaver and Lawrence County. Now, Governor Shapiro has said you know, we're going to need Norfolk Southern in the future to pay these costs, whatever additional costs come in. And they're negotiating an additional sum of money for the various impacts of, you know, this spill. But if just 1% of the population living in Beaver and Lawrence County end up getting cancer, you're looking at $2.8 million. And that's just if 1% of the people in those two counties get cancer. Now there's a huge watershed uh, that will be impacted by this. And we haven't heard a clear discussion from Norfolk Southern uh, or the folks involved with this uh, analysis. So the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, they're not really looking at the full extent of the potential people that will be impacted by this. There are 10 class action lawsuits uh, and it looks like the settlements they're talking about are within the millions, but the long-term impacts are clearly far more than the immediate impacts will be. And how will we adjudicate that impact in the future to make sure the train company does take full responsibility and does pay everyone everything that they're owed if this takes, as you said, years to kind of to figure out what the lasting damage is? You know, it's messy. There needs to be some kind of commission or group set up to assess these impacts in the long term. The problem with a lot of these class action settlements is people who are plaintiffs might get excited and say, you know, this seems fair to me right now. And they might not think of the long term and they, there might be legal provisions that lock them in. You know, this is settled. You can't sue again after this. That would be a double jeopardy type of situation. So it's really important that anyone who's a plaintiff in these class action lawsuits doesn't sign off their rights to then sue again if years down the line they end up contracting cancer. Because right now, you have all these federal agencies saying that, you know, the air is clean, the water is clean, but then people are taking showers and, and falling ill. People are not drinking the water because they feel ill when they drink it. We can't imagine what the long-term impacts will be. We know that vinyl chloride and many of the chemicals involved in this spill and explosion are carcinogens. Uh, so that's a huge concern, yeah. yeah it's going to be difficult. I, and I find that element of this very interesting because, you know, given the larger or the broader political context over the course of the pandemic, you know, Team Blue has very much become the, the team, you know, trust the science, trust the experts, the government officials uh, know more about this thing, these things, listen to what they have to say. And in, in this context, right, the government officials are like the EPA have said, oh, yeah, it's safe. Everything's fine. You can drink the water. Look at us. They have you know, the mayor and an official drinking water. We've seen that video. And, uh, and, and the right, on the other hand, has become much more uh, incredibly suspicious about this kind of, of, uh, of, of guidance. But here you have, you know, you have a kind of left populist uh, interest in having, in, in maybe pushing back on what the experts are saying in this case. So I, I find the politics of it very, very interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's that cleanly divided, right? You have folks on the ground uh, who are just everyday working people, some of which who voted for Donald Trump, who have said, you know, I would expect any leader to come in here and, and visit this location and talk to the people here and really see what's going on. That's not an expert 
expectation I'd have of Biden now that he hasn't shown up and visited. That's an expectation they'd have of Donald Trump as well. Uh, and it seems that they have consistent complaints. Regardless of who's in the highest office, they would expect federal agencies to probably do a more thorough job. You have President Biden setting uh, federal agencies door to door to talk to folks in East Palestine. Uh, you know, that's not really the right response. I think we need to have folks saying, okay, here is our our step-by-step -step plan. If you're making this complaint to the folks at the door, they're not going to pass you off to some state agency or nonprofit and expect all of the problems to be solved. They should be gearing a lot of their, their research capacity toward exploring what the long-term impacts of this are and be really clear to the people in East Palestine what that approach is. I think the, the main problem here is we're getting little to nothing from the United States government on this. I mean, we have some folks who represent East Palestine in Congress who are very upset about this. And we have the governor pretty much on this, uh, you know, harassing people in federal agencies saying, you know, we need more attention here. But I think at the end of the day, people want more regardless of what side of, of the aisle they're on. This is their livelihood. Yeah, and it's worth noting what the federal government could be doing. Um, it has in the past when there has been um, kind of these acts of God, these, these talks, not really an act of God in, the, in this case, it's not like a, an environmental event, but uh, these significant toxic events that uh, hurt a specific local community, you can extend by executive order Medicare to the entire area to give them long-term medical care. That's something that some folks have been calling for as of yet, nothing from the Biden administration as to whether the people of East Palestine deserve to have health care uh, for their lives. It's worth noting that two-thirds of adults with health care uh, who have had cancer themselves or in their family end up cutting, spending on food, clothing, other household basics. We're on the precipice of uh, ending a lot of uh, pandemic-era programming at the same time the people in this community are potentially going to have to gear up for paying these incredible health care costs. Medical bankruptcy is incredibly common when people get health care. And at the same time that we're contemplating those sorts of costs, it's worth keeping in mind uh, what the profits are of the company that has caused this mess. In 2022, Norfolk Southern generated $12.7 billion in revenue, $3 billion in profits alone, and a $50 million charge to pay out to uh, East Palestine would equal only 1.7% of its 2022 profits, its overall profits. This is at the same time we're talking about an industry that has not invested any of those profits into certain safety measures, which again have been fought, fought um, to the end by railroad lobbyists in Norfolk Southern and a number of uh, uh, politicians, mostly Republican politicians, who have taken that money to defeat this kind of legislation. All that being said, I mean, what are you hearing from the people in Norfolk about what their demands are? And are they really clear on the kind of financial imbalances here and what could be provided for them in the longer term? Yeah, I think we've got to be critical of just Norfolk Southern spending throughout the past five, 10 years when they have so much excess profit. Uh, they're doing stock buybacks. They're giving returns to their shareholders and increasing pay for their CEOs and executives and spending a ton of money on lobbying uh, for deregulation purposes. They could be investing that money in increasing the safety of the railroad. And we talk about the cost-benefit analysis that's usually done 
by government and public service consultants at large firms like McKinsey and Deloitte, where essentially outsourcing a lot of work that should be done in-house in the government. And then we see a lot of the interests of the public being compromised with that model. And it's increasingly becoming the case that we rely so heavily on private sector consulting to do work that should be public work done by the government. So that's a huge problem there. But there's also this internal cost-benefit analysis done by Norfolk Southern, where they say, okay, is it better for us profit-wise? That's really the only return they're thinking of when it comes to benefits. How can we increase you know, our margins? How can we increase returns to shareholders? And sometimes, even if they don't get the regulation done through lobbying and they say, you know, that's worth it in the long term, we can profit much higher if we allow these trains uh, to run past their capacity, even if they're carrying hazardous chemicals, they say, okay, yeah, we're going to do it. Uh, and whatever the cost may be for these negative externalities, so that's an economic term for just their regular business, what they're profiting off of doing, having negative impacts on the people surrounding their business, where they're doing business or where their trains are passing through. And there's something called a negative externalities tax. And I think we should put a negative externalities tax on Norfolk Southern for driving their trains at speeds that are higher than they should be, for having one man crews, uh, and for transporting dangerous and hazardous materials, and then only offer offering sums. Initially, it was $25,000 that they offered the town of East Palestine. That would be $5 per resident. It's just insane. But by their cost-benefit analysis, it's much better for them to say, let's profit as much as possible, and whatever legal fees we have to pay for these folks, we will. We need a negative externalities tax on companies that do things like this. And we also need a windfalls profits tax because they're profiting tremendously now thanks to inflation and, and price increases that were really done uh, as an excuse at the beginning of the pandemic when we had so many uh, supply chain breakdowns. I think that's such an important point about externalities that until they're forced to internalize the costs that are currently being borne by the people of East Palestine and, and communities like it all over the country, that their cost-benefit analysis will tell them that it's more beneficial to engage in risky behavior. So there's a real public investment in internalizing those costs through a tax or changing liability standards or, or whatever it is. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Comedian and podcaster Russell Brand was on Real Time with Bill Maher talking about the propaganda being declared by MSNBC and their host, which sparked a debate between Brand and MSNBC's John Heilman. Let's watch. I'd like to hear a specific example, a provable specific example of an MSNBC correspondent or anchor being on television saying something they knew was false and were saying behind the scenes to people, this is, I'm about to go out and we know that we know that the election wasn't stolen or something equivalent, but I will go, but I will go out, but I will go out on television and say the okay. opposite. I will lie. When's I'll, my answer? Wait, wait, give, just give me a, give me the specific example. I understand the basic okay. Give me a specific I, I, example. I, 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 all right, all right. I'm with you. I think it's a false equivalency, Russell. It's a no, it's I, not. I, that's I, your I, own biases. It's, it's, it's not I, about bias. It's a false equivalency because you don't <clears> actually know anything about any of these organizations you're talking about. Even on MSNBC once. Big deal. My darling, you, it was more than enough. With, you can't come it up with such a carry You don't have a single, you have a single actual no. fact. Do you want an example? Yeah, Do you yes. want an example? Yes. The ludicrous, outrageous criticisms of Joe Rogan around ivermectin, re deliberately referring to it as a horse non, medicine when they know it's an effective medicine. Hmm. 
Yeah, so uh, Russell Brand went on quite, uh, quite a tear on uh, on Mar there. He's been he's done a lot of great hits lately, mm -hmm. um, giving voice to a lot of things that. I believe, probably you believe to some degree, um, uh, you know, pushing back on the mainstream narrative, indicting the mainstream media, people at places like MSNBC and CNN, and that was an MSNBC person he was confronting there, for, uh, for, for getting things wrong and being agenda-driven and for not being critical enough of, you know, what health officials were saying, for not even considering how this would affect Pfizer's bottom line or Bill Gates' bottom line, you know, questions of large um, corporate power, something you, you would want progressive people to interrogate that's not being interrogated on those networks that Russell Brand does a lot of interrogating on, on his own uh, show on Rumble. So, uh, so, so that, was a, that was a pretty powerful clip. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think a lot of liberals who watch that are people who might be more aligned with uh, John Heilman will say, you know, he asked for an example and they found that the fact that Russell Brand pivoted to ivermectin as the example, less persuasive as some other examples that one might have given. Um, but, you know, it's also, look, I think that ivermectin, it wasn't the strongest mm -hmm. moment um, for that section of uh, the internet or a section of politics, but the response to it from the liberal media, I think, does deserve criticism. So even, remember, Sanjay Gupta went on Joe Rogan and basically apologized, yeah. uh, saying that he shouldn't have called ivermectin uh, horse, horse medicine yeah. or whatever. And that, so even if it wasn't indicated for all of the things that people were claiming it was indicated for, maybe not as effective as people that were claim, uh, claiming. It also was being smeared in this way that was also not scientific or necessary, and I, I think caused a lot of the division that we're living with now. So I don't think that Russell Brand was bad to bring up that example, but it has been really interesting to watch other folks fill in that space. And the list is long of things that, of course, the liberal media has gotten wrong over time. He also called out uh, MSNBC for having barely anything to say about what's going on with Julian Assange. Yes. Uh, and that's something I pointed on, on this, uh, pointed out on this show. The only the only mention of Assange in recent uh, at, at the time we was talking about it, you know, hit Assange facing extradition uh, back to the U.S. You know, there there's credible reason to think they're all but trying to kill him. Essentially, a whistleblower, yeah. someone who who shared with the public that the U.S. was engaged had had done criminal things that you deserve to know about uh, has been has has had his life taken away from him because of it again you'd think something this actually gets coverage now because of Assange's crusade against Hillary Clinton didn't like Hillary Clinton didn't like her politics uh, Assange probably gets more defense uh, in in right-wing media to be frank MSNBC you know only m mentioning this in like a very narrow context yes. uh, in like an opinion article somewhere yeah um, and, and Jimmy Dore, uh, and, and about and, and their framing was about the potential for like for 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 intelligence to be spread that the national security state doesn't want people to have access to in case he's brought back. That was their concern. Yeah, ridiculous. yeah, it is ridiculous. And I mean, Jimmy Dore has made this point before that he has been able to go on Tucker Carlson and make the case for Julian Assange in a way that he was never he is never invited mm -hmm. on the liberal media. And people who criticize him for going on there say, I can go on the the, the biggest time sh show in this uh, time bracket. And even if it's not necessarily what Tucker Carlson wants to talk about, he has the ability to platform issues that are of significance and importance. And you know, Russell Brand pointed to a, a one hit that he did, one appearance that he did on MSNBC as enough to teach him exactly <laughs> what um, uh, limitations there are, shall we say, on that network in terms of messaging. And people dismiss that, oh, you've only been on one, you don't really mm -hmm. know. You know, uh, uh, John Hallibin says you don't really know enough about what you're talking about. But when you actually go back and watch that clip and how dismissive, again, they were of these kind of substantive issues, 
Yeah. He has a point. I probably would have gone, you would have had to prepare before the question was asked. You had to know it was coming. I would have brought up all the times people on MSNBC or CNN, again, describe, not to be, this is my hobby horse right now, describe the lab leak theory as a racist conspiracy theory that, that Trump is pushing, and so you should stay as far away from it as possible, yeah. of which there are tons of examples. Yeah. Well, journalist Tom Elliott decided to take Heilman up on his challenge and posted a substantive Twitter thread filled with clips of Heilman himself supposedly lying on air. The most recent clip is of him claiming the Biden administration's attempt to ban gas stoves was Republican fake news. Let's watch. Political parties get addicted to sugar highs. It just happens that the sugar high that the, the Republican Party is addicted to is like bad bathtub meth. It's like they're they're high on that sugar. It's not just rotting their teeth. It's like rotting. It's like rotting their brains at the same time. And it's rotting God. their ability to be competitive outside this very narrow uh, piece of the electorate that's willing to believe this bullshit, as I will yeah. call it, even oh, on the most holy on. of secular holy days. It's, it, it, it is, it is, it's, it's the We're worst. Sorry. You had to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had to apologize. You I never yeah, read Rev, Rev Shark has never heard that word before in his life. You know, I, this actually speaks to. It's almost more the tone sometimes with the, the just incredibly dismissive tone of people who think outside the, the, the a very narrow window that they're yes. not even and they're not aware of how small and dwindling that audience is of the people who just want to be confirmed about mainstream narratives. It's, they're dripping with contempt. They, they describe right people who are who are watching conservative media as as addicted to bad bathtub meth. <laughs> it's, it's that like level yeah. of contempt more so than any, because the gas stove thing was, was a little bit con yeah, which contemplated. The way, there were, there were, you know, the, 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 whatever agency it is does want to phase them out. There was somebody got asked a bad question. No, there's no specific democratic plan to get rid of them. But yes, there is some agency that wants to move away from them. So it was a little bit more in the middle than that. I think that's what we said on our show. It's, but on then either side, you're getting, you know, yeah, they're all coming for gas stoves or no one would ever dare tell you you can't do anything. We don't do that in this country. Yeah, in the same way that I was critical of Tucker Carlson for disparaging, you know, uh, people who buy groceries to make some point about uh, John Fetterman's mental capacity, I don't know that liberals should be in the position of denigrating people who have addictions to hard drugs to make some point about a conservative mindset. It just all of it is so ugly and so unnecessary. But, and I agree with you, I think that, I don't think that the a stove example, the gas stove example, is the best example to show lies on MSNBC because it's 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 a more nuanced story than that um, for the reasons that you mentioned. But Jimmy Dore did quote tweet this clip uh, of Russell Brand with a list of what he perceives to be MSNBC lies: the Ukraine war is unprovoked, Russia sto Russia stole the election, Russia gate conspiracy theories right. were Russiagate, yeah, that's a great example. Um, yeah. That the vaccine stops transmission, that yeah. ivermectin is dangerous. That's obviously what um, Russell Brand was getting at. Um, and then he says some things that I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with, but lab leak is racism is, is one of them. Clearly, there are a lot of things that the mainstream media has got, the liberal media has gotten wrong. And again, this, I don't even say that as an indictment, but the posture that some in the liberal media have taken that fake news is over there, real news is over here, we're the ones that can be trusted. They, no matter what the topic is, can't be trusted as an absolute measure. You hear something that came out on Fox, you dismiss it out of hand. That's what's leading to the siloing 
that is really hurting our politics. And moreover, we watch clip after clip of these ad hominem attacks. Who is talking about any policies, any bills mm -hmm. that are going after the pharmaceutical industry? Who is talking about any policies or bills that are going to reform what's going on with the railroad industry? Who is talking about any uh, actual uh, policies or hearings that are going to reform these overreaches by the FBI? To the extent on that one, some people on the right, but there's absolutely, absolutely no broader uh, mm -hmm. buy-in and no discussion of whether or not any of those reforms are necessary or not on the liberal media. It's a sad, sad state of affairs. Yes, it is. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Team Rising is already working hard to plan a fantastic Wednesday show for you, so we'll just have to find out what it entails. I know I can't wait. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.